Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I'm Research and Policy Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As those of you who tune in regularly will know at this point, we release our podcasts in three different formats. There's a 10 minute lesson series where the aim is to educate and inform on a particular area of policy in bite-sized chunks. There's our seminar series where we get the chance to listen back to presentations we've had at past events from speakers as diverse as Santina Bertolesi and Lena Carr to Roddy Doyle and Emmett Kirwan. And then we have our interview series where we speak to experts on a really wide range of policy issues. So I'm delighted this week to be joined by two members of the Living Wage Technical Group. Robert Thornton is Research Manager at the Vincentian Messel Research Centre and Kieran Nugent is Economist at the Nevin Economic Research Institute. And they just chat to me about how the figure has arrived at and why it matters. I hope you enjoy. But something I read recently, I bought that book Scarcity, so which is the, the true meaning of not having enough. And what they say in that is that we know that uncertain income streams can create anxiety. So I suppose this is an important conversation. This isn't just <coughs> academic theory or an academic argument over minimum wage versus living wage. This is important to people's lived reality, I suppose. I just wanted to ground it in that. So I might begin with maybe the history behind the living wage. In terms of in Ireland and the technical group, I suppose we start with that that notion that employment, full-time employment should provide people an adequate income to enable them for uh, have a life with dignity, to live at an acceptable minimum level, avoid poverty, all, all of those things. And when you want to answer that question, then you look at, at calculating a wage rate that's will meet those needs and how do you meet how do you do that? You you look at research and evidence on what the cost of an acceptable standard of living is and work from work from that point. And so in that sense, then the living wage, that's what the living wage sets out to do. Yeah, so it was the, the we've been doing the minimum essential standard of living research um, started back in 2004, and it's been going for a, a good number of years. And it's developed and grown. And it, we, you know, one of the consistent findings was that the minimum wage tended not to enable an adequate income if, if based in full-time employment, where albeit that it's unlikely that someone in minimum wage employment might have full-time consistent reliable hours but even in that kind of ideal scenario they would still not have enough to enable a decent standard of living so then the natural next question then is well, what do they need so we in we started looking down at what we call the minimum income standard so calculating for sort of specific scenarios and situations what gross salary would be needed to enable people to, to live with dignity to meet their minimum needs to know they'll have enough to afford food clothing pay their heating bill, pay their rent, all of those things provide for themselves and their families. But then really that that answer to what, how much do they need, that varies, depends on what household you're talking about, what housing situation they're in, what part of the country they live in. You know, their their needs will vary. You know, Do they need a car? Do they not need a car? Do they have children? How many children? What ages? Um, if they're in a rural area, maybe they heat their home with oil. If they're in an urban area, they might heat it with electricity and so forth. So the living wage then was as a way to try and distill all of those things down into one figure that helps. It's not an answer for it's not a silver bullet. It's not an answer for everything, but helps inform debate and policy decisions and, and all the rest around what is the lowest and what's the earnings floor that any other services and policy interventions from government could then work from to ensure that people would have this adequate income that enables a life with dignity. And really, when you look at the, I suppose, the thinking behind the living wage, that it's meant to 
be that minimum for a decent standard of living. It very much reflects the same kind of thinking that informs um, the government's definition of social inclusion and the sort of roadmap for social inclusion, the the idea around the, the European pillar of social rights that people should have a minimally adequate income to enable a life with dignity. So it's a way of trying to take those concepts and distill it down into what's the actual number then that that would be in terms of an hourly rate. That makes sense, yeah, as you said, because there's always going to be a question of, well, how much is enough? And when we look at, say, defining poverty and what it's needed to get by, you do need to be able to put some sort of a figure on that. But it feeds into the conversation, I suppose, that if the answer to poverty, if poverty is linked to welfare dependence and then the answer to welfare is work, mm-hmm. going to work has to be meaningful and has to make sense. And in the opening of another book I was reading, at Living Wage and the Welfare State, in the very first page, he said the pandemic is a reminder that the world only functions because of the daily activities of millions of people who are poorly paid. So now is a very interesting time to be having a conversation about meaningful work and who was important. Like the pandemic really showed us who the really important people in our society were. And it was generally people who were on minimum or living wage. But you mentioned, I suppose, an interesting point as well is that they do need to, it does need to be linked with hours as well doesn't it it needs to be linked with with decent sustainable or secure hours is that part of the conversation like how how can we link those two things in terms of maybe gig economy or platform work or mm-hmm. do you want to take that care on suppose just the, the prevalence well, of i mean the, the it's Obviously, the the living wage is calculated on your weekly bills or on your annual bills or or whatever. So it's kind of divided down then to get an hourly rate for a thirty nine hour week. So it's a floor and it's a it's a guide. There's going to be people who are you know in in reality that you know it it, it won't be they won't be able to work thirty nine hours a week. Or there's also the other you know it, it's about a single adult as well that that's what how much it costs to have a minimum essential quality of life uh, for a single adult so it doesn't even count what the cost of children are or what the cost of an additional adult or a bigger house or buying a house or saving or or any luxuries or anything like that um so it's a floor and um you know the supplementary welfare uh, you know the reality of it as it is now you know that that would uh, likely have to. You know, I don't think there's any scenario where that goes away at any any stage soon. Um, in in terms of of uh, intervening to to keep up the the standards of living of people who might find them in that find themselves in that situation, especially to say a single mother or something like that. We know we have low employment rates for single mothers, high deprivation rates, high at risk of poverty rates. And generally speaking, because they're not in employment, and pro- a lot of it is to deal with some of the stuff you described earlier on with the with the um, you know, work has to pay, and mm-hmm. if it doesn't, and especially if you're trying to pay for childcare in an environment such as that in Ireland, especially in around Dublin, especially the cities, um, that's you know going to be very difficult for for individuals. So, this is a you know, it's part of the debate to kind of just shine a light on 
you know, the issues that would be facing even full-time workers on minimum wage, they're going to be skimping on something, mm-hmm. right? Now, I, you know, I like to focus on, or it's part of my research um, that I focus on are, are young people, which obviously are have higher rates of, of low-wage employment. A lot of them are, are living at home because they're deprived literally of uh, independent living because their their minimum wage will not <clears throat> cover that along with, with the bills and fields. That'll be worse this year again. There are issues around the precariat and all that. That's a, a, even more, you know, on top of low wages, even mm-hmm. for full-time staff, you have all these people on minimum wages who don't get the hours. And what, what are they foregoing? What kind of lifestyles are they living? You know, we have a whole cohort of of, of um low wage employees in especially in hospitality and retail in Dublin. You know, we anecdotally we hear that, you know, they have to sometimes they're cramped two or three to a room in bunk beds, you know, they're they're reliant on partners who earn more. There's a gender issue with that mm-hmm. as well. You know, whether you're um you know a lot of this a lot of if you know we're all, I think we, we, we get a lot of um messaging to prime us for 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 new realities etc etc so recently we were getting well you know household income i mean raising the minimum wage doesn't really increase the the or or decrease the share of households under this poverty line or whatever and for me that's no different kind of philosophically from saying oh well sure you can get paid less than the husband because you know he'll look after you. You know he's putting, he's bringing home the bacon. Like so, I I find those arguments um uh, questionable in terms of you know policy and in terms of actually understanding the lived reality of a lot of workers in Irish society. It's hard to get a, a pinpoint on, you know, how many are voluntarily part-time so you have to think about these kind of things and like how many are actually under the minimum wage but if you just take weekly wages and you look at how many are underneath the living wage as it is when you multiply it by the 39 it's close to a third it's somewhere in around a third of all all workers right and that's not you know not that a lot of them will have kids so they're 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 even they'll they'll likely be struggling more this winter is going to be very difficult for a lot of people with it, with, with with heat and electricity as well and obviously rents have gone crazy yeah. so you see more I, I mentioned already but you see more and more adult children living at home every year it's do, the, the share of i think it was a 25 to 34 year olds so you're talking people who should be finished should be in high-end jobs you know for the most part um, the share of them living at home has doubled to close to two thirds. It was a third, and now or is that right? Yeah, so something like that. It, it's doubled anyway since twenty twelve. Seven eight years of strong employment growth, strong wage growth. Well, reasonably strong wage growth in the last couple of years. This is this is a reflection of wages. We're talking. We talk a lot about household income, where I think we should be talking about wages and your individual. Um, ability to live independently in the way you want, and it and it's not even in the way you want. As I said, as Robert said, it really is a minimum essential. The, the the field budget for a week is somewhere in around fifty euro. I just before this went to, to the shop for a coffee and a brownie, and it cost me six euro. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so that makes me think of two things, and the first one would be that conversation is supposed about how you spend your money and budgeting. So you go online or you do any kind of money management 
using any sort of money, money management tools. And what you're encouraged to do is write down all of your spending. And then what it sometimes says is that, you know, at the end of the week, you'll be surprised at how many lattes you drink. And that's not the conversation we're having when we're discussing people living in, you know, on minimum wage or close to the living wage is that they are having to make really, really difficult decisions, as you said, about what they go without in order to make ends meet. So it's a conversation about are you showering every two days, every three days? Are you putting the heat on? That conversation is supposed about the living wage. I was at a presentation recently and just what you said there reminded me that the conversation turned to discussions of poverty and measurements of poverty and that because poverty was more prevalent in households that were welfare dependent or that there was no nobody working in the household that a minimum wage increase wouldn't have any impact on the poverty figures but I kind of thought that's a little bit like a Phillips screwdriver and a, and a flathead screw like I, I think they're sort of two different conversations so if a household if a household is welfare dependent and is living in poverty we need to have a discussion about welfare and if a household is working and living in poverty we need to have a discussion about wage and then move it from there and again if you want me to move from welfare dependency into the workplace the work has to be meaningful it has to pay well it, it, it needs to be worth my while. Like I'm always fascinated by the, the work disincentive conversation and people who don't want to work, of which I proudly count myself amongst their number. I don't want to work. What's the point <laughs> you're trying to make? You know, <laughs> that, that's not what it's about. Like, it, you know, the, the social welfare system in Ireland is not generous enough for it to be a lifestyle choice that yeah. i we, we can we can talk to colleagues all across the country about how not not difficult but how impossible we want 208 euro a week and, and like, to say to say that that's a lifestyle choice i just find extraordinary if it's so great why have we got the most highest employment rates in the history of the state and it absolutely accelerated last year mm -hmm. second of all we don't have a a, a high share of jobless households or even well we have a little bit of a high share of what's called low intensity work households okay and it is quite high now when you look at the difference between the jobless households was about which is the eu average like you wouldn't know that from you know and this 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 kind of narrative this kind of uh analysis started coming out during the recession i think is a uh to you know to take away um you know, culpability from, from the austerity uh, approach and to start blaming individual um, households and, and, and members of certain communities on their own um, circumstances when, you know, unemployment, you know, it, 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 we, we lost about 400, 500,000 jobs in the space of three or four years. And then all of a sudden, oh, it's, you know, it's these people in these households, and you know who I'm talking about, wink, wink. And the fact of the matter is the only time where that was true was during the recession, at the height of the recession, right? Uh, our, our share of jobless households is... Which recession, just for clarity? Uh, the real, the, the GFC. <laughs> the GFC. It's not really mentioned too much in, in you know, sometimes it, it, it frustrates me a bit. I feel like the collective uh, understanding of the last recession in 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 terms of our whatever you want to call it commentary or whatever is in 1980s they always talk like the 1980s was the last recession but actually <laughs> the last recession was after 2008 and so this became the line and it's not not really uh, supported by the 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 data it was for 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 a little while um and then you've the, you've then you've these you know putting up the minimum wage will not help poverty 
right? Okay, this mm -hmm. is the, the line now, right? Now, if you get an answer like that, if for me, I, I'm just like, okay, do you want to check why you got that? I don't think it's it's very good. I don't think it's good analysis. They're not, not very relevant. It would, it would be very hard to do the same analysis with a dep with deprivation indicators yeah. because, you know, the way we 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 um we measure deprivation is, you know, do you have a second pair of shoes, you have a second jacket, can you go out two, two three times a month or, or whatever it is? So by giving them <clears throat> more money, you can't really model, okay, this, this family last time didn't have a second jacket, but... We can assume then that they'd be able to afford it. It's it's just very difficult to do an analysis on that. But I would argue you don't need to do an analysis on it because the answer to the question is so clear: is that if you give low wage workers who are under a living wage, which means by definition they're living some kind of um, paired back lifestyle in terms of essential, you know, what we would consider adequate. Again, as I said, fifty euro budget for food, it's not much. Um then you know, obviously that's gonna help you pay the bills. Obviously it's gonna help you save for a house, or if that's what you if that's what you go to. Obviously it's you know, you're you're gonna have more money left over, you're gonna be borrowing less. It that's like it's not even economics one on one. It's like my granny sent me to the shop with twenty p when I was six years of age. You can exchange money for goods and services, so I don't understand this. Uh, you know, the, a lot of the analysis there is just it. It. it, it I think it overclaims. I think the 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 um the results that are spit out by some of these papers. There's a, there was one or two in the SRI. I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think they stand up to, to, to much screaming. And I, I've just been, I, I didn't realize it because I only found it a couple of months ago, but the, the Eurostat don't even consider this indicator an indicator of poverty. They explicitly stated this is the mother organization or whatever you want to call it, the European head of the C of our central statistics office. And they have it in the glossary there. And this is this is ninety percent of our conversations about poverty revolve around the at risk of poverty indicator, which isn't even an indicator of poverty. Now, again, poverty is very difficult to to, to measure anyway. Right? How are you gonna? There, there's none of them are none of them are good. We have to look at them all. We have to look at them all. We have to look at distribution. Um, we, we have to look at adequacy. We have to look at the cost of living is important. Because that's what the problem is with that at-risk of poverty indicator. It doesn't consider anything about the cost of living at all. The equivalent disposable household income. So it gets it gets put down for simplification, for communication re uh, reasons too. Just poverty. And then a lot of meaning is lost in that. And people jump on that. And pe people who want to jump on that because that's, you know, that it, 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 it benefits them to understand our society that way or, or whatever they'll, they'll jump on that and, and they'll say look sure i mean poverty hasn't increased what are you talking about generation x and millennials you're you're all a bunch of softies or whatever they say you know and you're all imagining it you're all uh, they're all laughing and they're going you know if you want to emigrate haha go go emigrate like you know and this is you know it's all lost in that analysis right none of that analysis is actually picking up um, the lived reality of what I would say, especially younger workers, um, okay. it's, and it's not even you know under thirties; it's it's under forties at this stage. 
suppose it's a wealthy country. Like that's the other part of it. Like it's a wealthy country. But you could see where, Robert, I might go back to you. Like you could see where the pressure points were in, in calculating the 2023 living wage rate. What else did you notice when you were, I suppose, going down? Because you, you work out the, the minute numbers, really, don't you? Yeah, I suppose the, the big one was, I mean, year on year, pretty much every year doing the living wage calculation since we started in 2014, housing has been the big story and pushed it up every year. And you know, that's not surprising to anyone. We all know the, the issues with rent and the living wage calculations are based on living and rent of accommodation. But this year, then, like housing, it was again was responsible for about half of the increase in the living wage. But then energy, transport were the were the other two big ones, and transport really being for um, households that need a car. So it's cost of fuel primarily for the car, but also an increase in the likes of um, the the cost of actually purchasing a used vehicle. Um, cost of maintaining it, all of those kind of costs have gone up too. Um, with the exception of car insurance, which actually went down slightly. Um, and then food went up and that would be significant in any other year. The the rate of increase in food was was notable, which on this, on living costs and on the living costs for this kind of, where we focus on, you know, a single working age adult without dependence, just working full time and, you know, so really qualifying for the minimum amount of sort of other supports and so what would they require then to earn and housing is what's really pushed up their their needs so much more than anything else so that feeds into the conversation that it's ultimately the government who will subsidize those wages because they're putting in working family payment they're putting in um housing assistance payment they're putting in additional needs payment where mm-hmm. if you get your housing if you have an adequate supply of affordable secure sustainable suitable housing you don't need to pressure industry to increase the living wage because you can as you said you can keep it quite close to the minimum wage would you like to imagine i mean industry is not happy even about the minimum wage never mind the living wage is there anything in the argument that if you increase minimum wage or living wage people will lose their jobs there's i, I was reading a meta study there which kind of compiled all the studies of the employment effects of minimum wage increases are basically more often than not there's no employment uh effect and uh, if any it's it's negligible um and the reason behind this uh is you know the lessons we learned from the austerity a great financial crisis which we did wrong was that the um the spending power at the bottom of the income distribution is extremely important to you know various sectors in, in the economy, but especially the service sector, especially hospitality and retail. Um, and we implemented the lessons we learned in that during the um during the last crisis, during the the, the lockdown COVID pandemic, and realized then that the you know keeping those income safe with the three hundred fifty PUP actually just maintain the productive capacity of the uh, of the economy with minimal minimal job losses compared to last time and it was a relative success so what I think obviously it's a bit abstract to set, tell a coffee shop owner who might be struggling that well don't you want your coffee shop 
employees to be able to afford to buy a sandwich in your shop at lunch? Or do you want the next door, the, the people in the pub or the chipper next door to come in for a cup of coffee at lunch instead of bringing their, their flask or their their plastic salad ball from, from Lidl or, 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 or that sandwich there that I see some people eating sometimes, which makes me very sad because <laughs> that's just a terrible way to eat your lunch. Um, so that, that spending power is important. We lost a lot of retail jobs like during the last recession um, because of this. And that filters through. Uh, we have one of the most unequal societies in Europe. We have one of the most unequal, we have the second most unequal wage distribution. We're an outlier on some indicators of market income at the household level in terms of the distribu- income distribution. So that uh, spending power, I think, it's, you know, it feels like the government are the only uh, people to have, you know, not they learned the lesson, they implemented the lesson, but they're denying that they learned and, and did the right thing, I think, during the, during the last. And this, this is actually going to have an effect yeah. with inflation. The fact that the real uh, minimum wage is actually going to be down this year compared mm-hmm. to 2020, that's going to have a real effect. When, when rent sucks up all that money, where does where's the first place it doesn't go? It doesn't go to a, a, a pub or a cafe or a restaurant or a weekend break or you know it, oh that's the first thing. A friend of mine owns a um a health food shop and he yeah. says like there's cosmetics and so therefore and that's the signs. I know even next door neighbor there who's who's selling um uh, second hand cars and that's that's another place where you see early signs of uh, demand issues in the economy going forward and. Those those wages at the bottom are important. Uh, they're important for a lot to, to small to medium enterprises all over Ireland, and so, we need to get that message across. I think. So I think even to sell this to say uh, the, the sort of neoliberal mindset, if we are to be a nation of consumers, we need to be able to consume. We need to be able to have the income to consume. So I would have thought that if you know you're coming at this from from that sort of business side of things it makes sense it, it's better for your business as you said i appreciate that it can be hard to maybe get the hairdresser to pay the staff but at the same time if she pays her staff they can go and buy the coffee that's going to allow the barista to go and get their roots done it does make sense if we are to be a nation of consumers if that's what we are groomed to be then we need to have the income to be able to do that and it does go back to your rent will be paid, your heat will be paid, your light will be paid, and then the rest of it then is negotiable. Would you think the living wage will ever be, suppose, taken on as as the minimum wage? We live in hope. Live in hope. I suppose the the, the proposals around a living wage as opposed to dead living wage are probably um, muddying the waters there so much. You know, so the sixty um, percent of median earnings and then possibly sixty six percent. Then the 66% does get pretty close to the, our calculations at the moment, but ultimately it's based on an indirect measure, a bit like the risk of poverty measure, um, rather than a direct what the people actually need to, to live on. So like, the ideal would be to continue to calculate a living wage on at what people actually need, rather than trying to estimate what they might need based on some other sort of slightly more abstract indirect measure. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Very grateful to Robert and Kieran for their time. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you have any ideas for any future conversations you would like to have, feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.